This meeting is being recorded. Hi, Anil Uncle, and thank you so much for coming on my live. This is, this is surreal to me. Uh, how are you doing, Uncle? Anil? Hi, Aman. It's so good to see you. This is amazing to see. I generally, I you know, when you said when you gave me those two time slots that um, we'll be doing at either twelve p.m. or three p.m. I I've never usually I'm not someone who's very excited or someone who shouts. So I shouted so loudly. I'm like finally, because uh, you're the biggest guest I've ever spoken to in these conversations that were. So I think let's just immediately get into it. Uh, so you you and Papa have known each other for almost thirty years. and because of that uh yes. you've known me and anch as well quite well you guys used to come to dubai very often i think one yes. of my very few things i was always very curious about is i knew you were in the indian foreign services for more than 33 years if i'm not wrong and mm-hmm. my main thing i'm very curious to ask was what made you look how did you get involved with the indian foreign services because you have a very interesting story with that could you if you mind could you share Well, well, Aman. I must say, when you asked me, I was also quite excited. I just thought that you will only talk to Auntie and not to me. Not at all. So I, I was very happy, and it's always a great pleasure now that I get a chance to speak to youngsters like you, who are really the future of our country, frankly. And uh, therefore, when you asked me, I thought this it would be great. And the fact that I have known you from your very, very small childhood, so that makes uh, it even more interesting. Uh, well, the thing is that uh, I, uh, as you know, I, when I was studying, something that I developed was to uh, hobbies to travel a lot. That became my real hobby, whether in India or outside. So I used to love to travel different places, go hiking, doing things, uh, sports, and whatnot, and also to meet a lot of people, then connecting people. Then I had a little uh, more interest in learning languages. you know so all these things combined <clears throat> when it came to uh, thinking about a career frankly i mean it's very difficult to decide on what career one would take or what kind of a service you will get eventually allotted uh, my uh, option was only the indian foreign service i said that that is one thing that could take you uh, to the places to the kind of opportunities to the kind of uh, expanse of cultures across the world uh perhaps that was one thing that uh, really put me and secondly uh i thought that uh, the languages will help me because i had a flair for the languages and that helped a great deal also and so in the meantime what happened is i did qualify for some other services uh, before joining the foreign service and uh, one of the most important jobs was, was of course customs which i was there briefly uh when uh, there the and i joined that because at that time uh, we had plenty of smugglers going around so like a young man who was very idealistic i thought i'm going to catch all these smugglers in india and then eventually i had those very funny stories of coming across some of them and that they were having a much cushier life than the prime minister of the country so i realized that they were all part of the same game uh, <clears throat> and therefore and corruption was rampant in those days in the various services like the customs because of the nexus so i resigned from that and then i joined air india as a flight person and when i joined air india that took me around to a very large number of countries about 36 37 countries so even when i had uh, joined uh, i mean i had qualified for the foreign service i my my desire to travel abroad 
that too in a bit of a style, was almost nearly fulfilled, you know, just to travel. So I had gone to across continents and countries with Kutsi Air India. And at that, those days, Air India used to be uh, one of the finest airlines and doing extremely well financially as well. So then I got a uh, call again the second time. And this is a funny story because see, before that, I had also qualified in the police service and custom. Uh, so every time you qualify in these services, what happens is that uh, police uh, verification is done of your characters and antecedents. So the police goes to your house, wants to ask people about how, what kind of fellow you are and all that. So my father, every time uh, I would qualify in one service or the other, he'll get these police verifications and he was fed up of that, feeding the policeman coming home and uh, saying, Sab, now your son is going to be this and that. So when my this foreign service call letter went to him, he was um, rather, uh, you know, he called me and he said, what is this nonsense? You must come home or you must join this service. And I was the first person in my whole family to have ever joined any civil service. You see, that was not, we did not have the tradition. Unlike my wife, whose family was from lawyers and judges and whatnot, but my own family, basically, no, I was the first person in the civil service. So my father said that you better join it. So I told him I'm getting so much and traveling. He said that money even a prostitute can earn. True. These were his words. And he said, so if you want to, you better come and join. So I tossed a coin and uh, the coin came to join the service. So after my, I had taken extensions and all before joining and the foreign service people had told me, the ministries, that if you're not joining, we were drawing your offer. Finally, I came to Delhi and uh, I joined the since then, the life has gone on and I have not regretted it. And I think it's a beauty when you say that you took a coin toss and you chose this thing. And that's how much like how much probability kind of plays a role in our. And I think Uncle, a very similar story to maybe uh, a very similar story to, to you and you choosing your career path is us coming back to India. No. Everything is a risk. You know, yes. there are these two paths that we have. Uh, and we don't know wh where this may lead to, but it's it's about t having the ability to take that risk. And we'll actually get, we'll get you know, I, I'm, re I'm really interested to actually ask you a lot more. So, because my father is has an extremely good memory, he's literally told me every single posting of yours. And uncle, when I tell you every <laughs> single posting, he remembers, he, I, he remembers this much, where he, he remembers that you had a dual posting in Cyprus as well as Libya. Or was it uh, Libya and Malta? I don't Malta, know. Malta, Malta. Malta, yes. Mm -hmm. So he remembers this much. So I want to actually ask you uh, about your. Um, yeah, I, I want to actually ask you about your first posting. If I'm not wrong, was it Ivory Coast? Yes. So that's right. Yeah. So I want to ask yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. You know what yeah. happens? Yeah. yeah. So um, I was just very curious. How was that experience, like being in the foreign service for the first time and going to a very, uh, going to a very new culture and new country and understanding that? Just could you give me some insight about it? One thing I want to tell you, Aman, is that uh, I've been very fortunate that I have been able to serve in countries at a time when it was very crucial for my country, number one, and was professionally so satisfying uh, for what I was looking into service, basically. So when I was in history and I was posted, uh, 
and since I studied French, and this is a Francophone country, so I was being prepared as a number two to the ambassador. Uh, and we had recently opened the diplomatic mission in Ivory Coast. I had not known much about uh, what this country will be like and all, because in Air India, I had traveled to uh, Kenya and Ghana at the time. While Kenya was quite good, Ghana was in a bad shape, very, very bad shape. So when you see the Africa was not the same kind of a country, if you go to South Africa or you go to some other country, they're very different. I had no clue about Ivory Coast, what it will be like, except that it sounded very exotic to me at that time. So uh, one of my relatives who was posted as a senior officer in the ministry, and he said, oh, why do you want to go there? I can help you go to London or something. I've been to London in this service, as I said. I've been to all the countries. So for me, London had no uh, very special status in that sense, you know, to travel or visit. I've been there 20 times before joining. So I said I would rather go there and uh, try to see this country. What it is. So the journey was very peculiar when I was going first time. First, I had to go because we had to travel by Air India. That was compulsory. Uh, as far as possible. So I traveled to Bombay, Bombay to Nairobi, Nairobi to Accra, Ghana, and then from Accra to Abidjan by the local airline, which was uh, Africa Airways at that time, if I remember correctly. And when I, uh, I stayed overnight in one of the places, but I tell you very interesting is and when I was at the Ghana, no, I didn't stay this time, but when I was in Accra, and there was a little, uh, there was a station officer from Air India who came to receive me along with the embassy official. The embassy guy left in a short while. He said, Sabha, your flight is the month three, four hours. So this gentleman, I'll help you. So I said, okay. So I was sitting there waiting for my flight. And then uh, time that was given on the ticket to, for the flight, I was looking outside and I saw suddenly a lot of people running towards the aircraft. A lot of women, you know, taking their baggage on head and all this, ladies. And I'm looking for this guy because he had my ticket, he had my uh, passport, everything, Air India man, and I was not able to watch, see him. And then suddenly I started frantically looking for him and he came running. He said, yeah, 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 please come, 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 your flight is leaving. And so I ran and then finally I got the and was in the plane. But when I arrived in Abidjan, you will not believe it was one of the most beautiful countries it was like the France of the Western Africa when the French had created it like that. Yeah. And a very beautiful country, very organized, everything available. And I was very happy to be there. And so when I arrived there, I was, of course, stayed in a hotel a few days. And then I started meeting a lot of my friends, uh, uh, African friends, basically. You know, embassy was small. So as a number two, you have a lot of uh, responsibilities on your class as a new place. So, when I saw it was basically there was not much knowledge about India, what India was yeah. in Western Africa, especially in the Francophone, because see the language also plays a big barrier yeah. often in different countries. And I'm talking of 1980s. Yeah. And so we had the, so I found that it was, uh, people they had no clue, but they were so loving yeah. and affectionate people, you know, when they called and spoke French and it was so nice to talk to them, they also opened their hearts to you, you know. And uh, so I liked it very much, and it gave me a lot of opportunities to be able to, uh, to to provide assistance to the people. For example, like we wanted to develop our trade and uh, relations. That's when I realized that how different the French colonialism to the British colonialism was. Yes, yes. Because yes. French was very much embedded in the system. They were so close to them. They were intermarrying. They were controlling the decision-making process and all. So from our perspective, it was a virgin territory, 
And so one could do a lot of work there. So I really enjoyed that posting a great deal. and i think that that's that's really really be- it's really interesting when you talk about your insights there in ivory coast and i think what you kind of mentioned one point is the importance of trade and uncle more than ever now because of because of the internet we can literally google uh, like what the current affairs are of each country and we have it on our yeah. fingertips actually but i think the when you i i, I don't realize how much uh how important diplomatic relations are and especially trade so trading is something that is affected my life consistently it's because papa's always yeah. papa's yeah papa's a trader absolutely and mm. what i always have a interesting conversations about him is because in order to have some sort of trading you need to have two really important things one is your geography and second is your knowledge of diplomatic relations with that country because you need to know whether right. you, the country that you will be trading with do they how what are the taxes that are and what are the duties that are yeah. imposed and i think what i found very interesting what you found uh, uncle very interesting was do you feel that you were playing this you were like almost playing a, intro, a very important role unknowingly a very important role in developing trade cuz uncle you were saying this is 80s na this was yes. pre this is pre 91 pre 91 liberalization yes so very that, difficult i'll tell you that yes yes so continue you can you can tell me you know what happened is i was within a few months my ambassador left. i was in charge of this for about two and a half years so the one of the interesting thing was that i tried to i saw that it's an agricultural country and it was a country which produced the largest cacao cocoa producer like all the chocolates and all that we eat so this is cocoa goes from there similarly they were one of the largest coffee producers and cashew producers so we were importing cashew from that country and it was an agricultural country and you know that uh, uh, i was a bit uh, enterprising in this time is because on your own you can't travel so when i made some friends students from the university there uh, they were going on a country tour in a bus couple of buses international students and local students and all so i joined with them for about 10 days and i travel with them all over uh, into the country staying in the hostels and things like that so that gave me the real insight uh, into the country's uh, functioning and the working there fortunately for me two or three things that worked there also that's why i said i was very lucky number one is i wanted to bring in indian agricultural implements you know tractors and all that we were manufacturing and we were the largest bicycle part supplier you will be surprised and also the for the renault cars uh the some supplies from uh, india of uh, these spare some spare used to go there and so when i tried to take up with the government at the time and so much change has taken place now uh, i could not get one tractor to be gifted to the uh, to the ivorian government because they wanted to see uh, that what it is like because they were not aware about india travel was not that much we yeah. hardly been focusing on africa at the time yeah. and i could not get it in my 3 years there in the meantime that the south korean ambassador came and he presented his credentials credentials is we give our letter we are and gives to that country's president accrediting me as the country of so before he came i went i read the news item that he has gifted 100 actors uh, to ivory so i went to meet him i said how is it going to work for you yeah that you are gifted like this he told me it's very simple it's business Yeah. Now we will open the uh, the service shops, and within three four years we will recover the cost of the tractor as well. Yeah. So you know it's a question of your uh, approach uh, as to how you do it. Then we had a very big trade fair in that country, and eventually things started moving very well. 
and i think that's a very but very diplomacy diplomacy is the most yes yes and i think you, you more than anyone uncle and i've had very interesting conversations with jab you've come over like this is pre covid we had i had a very interesting conversation with you regarding language and how important words mm-hmm. imp- words and tone and intention actually is when it comes to diplomacy because diplomacy uncle is something even you know it better than anyone it's very volatile extremely volatile at times you don't know it can change within days and weeks where stances can change a country's relations can change with even the smallest of effect so keeping that in mind how were you able to kind of no like how we able to kind of keep that intention and keep that tone even even when things with you didn't agree with and let's say you always you you didn't agree with the rules and regulations with what uh, what they were what they were saying and you know you to be honest uncle we're all human right gussa to sabke aata hai but how did you manage mm-hmm. your own emotions when it came to dim- diplomacy you know the diplomacy is art of somebody has said it like that uh, is art of saying things in such a way that if you tell somebody go to hell he really looks forward to it you know so that is something the whole purpose of uh, diplomacy is to create good relations right and if there is a problem or a friction how to remove that address that concern right and that you can do it only with two ways number one is by providing the right kind of information the correct information and assisting them on the ground in real time with the need So then they know that you are their friend, yeah. and that you mean well for them, right? So this is extremely important, and that's the job of the uh, diplomat on the front because you are the front soldier, and you are fighting uh, for your country. Very often you must be hearing that people say that the diplomat is the one who is sent abroad to lie for their country. Very true. <laughs> that's not true. No, 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 no. Actually, it, it lies on other. That's what. And the thing. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm so sorry to cut you off. Mm-hmm. No, um, no, no. It's okay. I've always had an interest in diplomacy since the beginning since I don't know why but living in Dubai uncle there are two things foreign trade and foreign services always interested me because I I am an expat and I don't ha- and I remember coming when I came back here I understood the amount of information that you have by just living abroad of India even in today's world where travel mm-hmm. is so accessible and it's about that foreign trade and it's about and because of papa you know unknowingly i i was gaining a lot of knowledge by just listening to what papa was talking to listening to the different countries listening and i think that's where you kind of understand yeah, that's where you kind of understand how important foreign trade comes into place and it's it's a round the clock job and i think we'll be coming back we'll be coming to a very interesting yeah. point um i'm also very intrigued about uh, so you, if i'm not wrong you've been posted in russia twice and in washington once So not I want to New York. New York, New York. Okay. How mm-hmm. was those two experiences? And because these two countries have a very, they have a very maybe volatile relation and not the best of diplomatic relations. How did you? How were the experiences just living in those two countries and just really understanding the way uh, maybe the foreign services work over there? So can you just give me a little more about that? Well, in the meantime, from Ivory Coast, actually, I went to um, Bangladesh. and the neighbor yeah. and uh, that was an amazing uh, posting for me and i can just tell you two two minutes that about that posting because with relations with bangladesh at that time were not that good yes this uh, is up, this is just uh, this is just after um, this is 79 86 yeah so this is 15 years after independence yeah. right so, yeah. yes 
That's right. So what happened is that, I mean, the, 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 the Rishad, President Rishad and before that, Zawal Haq and all those people were not that, uh, for us, it was a bit of a problem. Anyway, but since I was in Ivory Coast, you know, and there people didn't know what Bangladesh is. And there were several Bangladeshis who were working in African Development Bank and some other international organizations. So when they heard that I was going to Bangladesh, they said, oh, when you're going there, you must meet my friend and uh, you must meet my uncle, my this, that, all kinds of, so they gave me gifts, letters, names, and all. When I arrived there, and uh, they normally people think that if you are posted in the visa consulates, you must be intelligent, right? That is what is general perception uh, in the countries are. So immediately, as soon as I arrived, and they thought that I was uh, some intelligence guy from India services and has come there. So they started chasing me all the time. On top of it, I had these names of these guys who were really very well placed in the system. For example, somebody is secretary to president, somebody is something like that. So because they are, they are all these experts who were there, Bangladeshis, uh, they had told them that our friend is coming and everybody likes to you know, request the visas are the most important when there's no one country they can travel to from Dhaka at that time. So everybody likes to come and get a visa. And so if you're in the visa section, everybody will be, uh, you know, happy. So I was able to build that kind of a contact base and friendships. Secondly, my school friends were there who, who were industrialists, businessmen and all that. So it was great posting for me uh, professionally uh, satisfying, you know. And then I went to New York, a state commissioner from Bangladesh. Now, uh, no, I went to Mongolia from there actually. Yeah, and after Mongolia, I went to Bangladesh, uh, to USA, and uh, then came back to India, and then to Russia. So it's all like that. Now, you asked me about uh, USA. So USA, New York, I arrived there, and it was the time when we had undertaken economic reforms. That was in 1991. Liberalization of trade, yes. Yeah. Uh, liberalization. So I went there around 1993. Right. And uh, so I was there for three years as trade commissioner. And it was a very fascinating ex experience for me because coming from developing countries to suddenly when you arrive in a developed world like in US, uh, you just don't know, uh, I mean, where you are, you completely lose your moorings because here everything is in a shortage or not short supply. I think that everything is overly supplied. Everything is very different. People's attitudes are very different. For example, when I went to call on the commissioner of businesses, who's, who used to import about $12 billion worth of goods just in New York City, only one person. So when I said I'll come and make a courtesy call, because he calling making courtesy calls is a standard procedure in the diplomatic protocol and diplomatic service. You keep calling on people and uh, say like that senior people, diplomats, this that, government servants. Here I went to meet him, and when I went there on the way, and when you are going there, you know it's like sitting at home. Somebody will bring you tea, coffee. Somebody will ask you. That's how we are used to, right? And here I arrived in New York, and I went to his office, and he saw me, and he said he was outside standing. This commissioner. And then he said, come on. Uh, and on the way back, he said, you want some coffee? Have some coffee. You pick, help yourself. So I had to make my quickly get my cup of coffee. And I said, this is again, cultural shock. So then I went inside. And inside, I see these 12, 13 people sitting there in a big hall, you know, on the conference table. And they start. He said, you know, since you're coming, I thought time is money. So let's just uh, do this, some brainstorming, exactly what we can do for one another. You know, so that is the kind of a change that takes place. From my perspective, it was the most important and a good posting in a way because we were looking to attract a lot of foreign investment, technology, everything, right? And New York is the hub for all financial companies. And I'm happy to say that a very large number of those were able to come during that period. 
So I enjoyed that. Secondly, I was also uh, head of various public sector undertakings which were represented there by virtue of my position. You know, so like T-Board, I was director of T-Board for sometimes promoting tea in a coffee country, you can imagine. So that's a different kind of a challenge that you do. And uh, the remit of that office was very large compared to my own, which was only East Coast. So it was, uh, so from that perspective, and then I was able to interact with uh, the then finance minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, Prime Minister. I mean, he used to come every two months to New York and uh, Washington. So it gave me a greater insight, was able to do much better. So it was very interesting. And then, of course, you asked me about Russia. Russia, I've been twice, and I knew Russian language. So I, and I studied the history, culture, civilization at GNU. So I really always had a soft corner of Russia. And I wanted to be there. And my teachers were Russian in GNU. So I said, OK. And when I got a chance to go there, um, and uh, I had one of the most finest ambassadors, a great team, and there's a very big embassy. Russia is a very important partner for us, trade and farming. I was looking after first time uh, trade. Uh, I was looking after information and press, media management. So at that time, it was very important from many perspectives. And we saw President Putin, who, who was at that time intelligence chief, you know, to become prime minister and the then K become the president. The KGB, right? It was, the, it was the KGB, right? It was called FSB. He was earlier KGB. But by then it had changed to FSB. All right. So he was the FSB chief director of the FSB. And then he became prime minister for a few months and then became the president. And since then he has been continuing. He is still very much there. So I, it, was, it was an amazing thing. We were able to travel all over the regions, reviving India. Because see, both countries during the 90s after Soviet Union disintegrated, were trying to find partnerships with Europe, mostly yeah. in America. True. US and Europe, with the West in general. So their focus was that side, not towards India. So the whole thing is with President Putin coming in power, he started looking towards India more because everybody was disenchanted uh, with the pace of uh, normalization with the West. It was not that easy. And so during our period, we saw a lot of growth. The first uh, oil concession we got for YGC, or OVL as they call it, uh, was the, during that period. We were talking about importing the diamonds from large quantities from Russia. You know, the trade, the investment, the space, all kinds of collaboration was going on. So it was an amazing thing. And this was further taken to next step after 10 years when I went again there uh, as a deputy ambassador. That's very, very, very fascinating, Uncle. And you've, I think I want to mention something which is like a lot more personal to me. And that is Mongolia. And Mongolia weirdly has yes. had a very interesting relationship for both of us in general, because the common link to us is my father. Could you tell me more about your posting in Mongolia and how you actually interacted with Papa and how you guys built this relationship over there? You see, one of the biggest gifts of Mongolia was your father to me as a dear friend. That is something I can tell you. He's one of the finest human beings, and I think you know more better than I do. Uh, I have met, and one of the, the, the closest friends I have now, well, rather he treats us a little, a little more uh, because of the age or whatever. But I tell you, the, the thing is, when I was in Bangladesh, and uh, I, I heard that a Buddhist monk was being posted as the ambassador, uh, Venerable Kushak Bakula, uh, to Mongolia, it really, you know, enthused me a lot. And I had not heard about uh, Mongolia much and rather than going anywhere. Yeah, so this is the beauty of the Foreign Service. It can take you to places where you would not otherwise have gone. 
And so I opted to go to Mongolia. And when I was posted there again as his deputy uh, number two, and it was an amazing experience because the, the Soviet Union was disintegrating and uh, Mongolia was trying to find its diplomatic, uh, its democratic roots. And there were, uh, we used to see at night people standing in minus 30, minus 25 degrees outside human chains fighting against communism and all that. And it was this nonviolent exchange and change of power. So from our perspective, and secondly, it was amazing for me because I had all the freedom to do what I wanted with an ambassador who was a political religious ambassador, right? He was a 75 years old man who was respected locally as a living God. Uh, we used to have miles long queue in front of the embassy for his uh, blessings. Then uh, in India, he would talk to prime minister and the foreign minister like that. So whatever we wanted to develop our relations, it was so much easier for her to do that, right? So that on top of it, he was a spiritual leader. So I had all the freedom to do the rest of the mundane work. So it was so good. And it is in that context that your father came with a company called Simco. And uh, Simco then um, it was a Birla Group company. Yeah. Yes, Simco yeah. International, which was a Birla Group company. And they are the first company which started uh, under your father's guidance, the trading and all that thing, and looking for several projects. And then uh, we continued after that. And it was even the months together, and he used to get a lot of supplies from India, some tasty bites and whatnot, yes, you yes. know. And we had a wonderful time, I must say. And we always look, used to look forward to his return. And he came there several times, and then we stayed also for quite some time. It was, it was, that's what I say. I mean, having good friends is the only treasure you have in life. Very true. Very, very, very true. And I think that's very interesting thing that I didn't like. So my first interaction with you was maybe of like six or seven of the, what I remember. <laughs> And again, I never knew what you exactly did. And it's only later when you came to Dubai when I was a lot older that I started talking to you properly and understanding actually, you know, because you were so Anil auntie and Anu auntie. So Anil uncle and Anu auntie. I didn't know what you did. You were just my, my father's friend. And what I realized, uh, and I spoke to the, and I like actually mentioned this to uh, auntie as well, was the importance of relationships. And... With my generation, uncle, especially with social media, it's made relationships like, like maybe keeping in touch with relationships a lot easier. But I understood the value of like keeping physical in relationships as well, like meeting people physically as well. And I feel that over here, especially with my generation, it's it's not being translated very well. I feel because now everyone can literally a phone party. Everyone can talk to the video chat and because of COVID, we just saying. So another very unique thing I want to ask, uh, I want to tell you is, um, you've actually known three generations from of my family because mm-hmm. you've yes, gone to Dadi and Babaji's house in Delhi. You've mm-hmm. of course met my father and then you've met me and Ansh. So I feel how important, Uncle, are to key our relationships like even moving forward and not within your stay as well. Like, do you still know, do you still, are you still in touch with the people that maybe you have worked in the foreign services in these different countries uh, till now? And do you feel, you, do you feel kind of happy the fact that you have these friends from different nationalities? And what did you actually learn from maybe being a part of these different uh, countries? Like, what idea did you actually get especially? You know that uh, you rightly said that, I mean, that today with technology, you can keep in touch with people. Yes. For example, in the early years, when I was, uh, I mean, till my 
postings in New York. I mean, the, hardly the mobile or internet started just then. I mean, 90s basically it was popularized. You had the, uh, I had my first uh, email account when I was posted in Oxford. I mean, I was studying there for a year. So uh, at the university, so I got my first email account. I mean, then so you can imagine. I when I came back in the ministry, I introduced. Uh, the email letters, newsletters to all the embassies, the economic matters, what was happening, what are policies, all of And so today it is so much easier to interact, whether on WhatsApp or other social media platforms, it's so much easier. But it has also taken away that beauty of being in person and talking. Today people are sitting across each other and only busy in their phones. They put a Facebook post and then they keep looking how many people have seen it all the time, just pick up the phone, just do that. As if rather than talking, I mean, you will go anywhere. You will see. So I think that interpersonal communication has reduced or digitized yes. uh, to that extent. So it has, doesn't seem to have the same kind of, uh, you know, warmth. Appeal, in my view, appeal almost uh, to the, my my appeal and warmth. You know, you have warmth. Like for example, when your father and I, we don't talk on phone daily every day, but whenever we talk, whenever we meet, I mean, it is as if you know the whole love. So it, it, the, the true thing is that and your father, of course, your grandfather, actually, I must say, grandmother, they are the epitome of affection. You see, so that was something uh, one can one can see, and that's precisely your father and what him. But I, I love it because see, I know a lot of people uh, outside this. Another very beautiful part of the uh, foreign services that you make uh, friends across countries, across continents, places where you have uh, stayed there. You have learned uh, uh, to appreciate, and they learn to appreciate your things that you do. So, uh, I mean, I still maintain good relations, unfortunately, because of LinkedIn, because of uh, these, a lot of them have become friends on social media, so one knows what's happening in their life, and then you can always send a side message and yeah. touch base with anybody. Uh, but of course, I mean, it is very important to be physically connected as well, means meeting one another, asking and standing by one another when they need you most. Uh, and that is uh, the, the, the beautiful part of being, uh, having great friendships. And it's weird, Uncle, that, and I think that's why you're, uh, I was just saying, you're my 46th person who I've spoken to in this conversation series that I do when I'm post. Yeah, you're the 46th person I've spoken to on my, on these conversations that I post on Instagram as well and I post on these different social medias. And Uncle, what I started doing, which I didn't see a lot of people my generation doing, is just talking to people. And just talking to so many. I feel our generation in itself is very happy. And I think that every generation, you can't really blame my guy. I think I need to stop mentioning my mm -hmm. generation. But as if we don't really... We don't like to like talk to people a lot older than us and a lot of experience. We like to keep in our own bubble and everyone likes that. Everyone likes that comfort zone. And one mm -hmm. reason for why I started this is to first of all learn. Uncle, I have spoken to the most interesting of people who I've known in my past. And when you talk to them, you just realize, wow, this actually you you learn so much, Uncle. I'm learning so much, Uncle, just by talking to you for this for this much time. Thank and you. and this is the forty sixth conversation that I've had, and you learn different. And Great. one thing, and one thing that you get, uncle, is different perspectives, different perspectives, different ways of thinking, and different ways of maybe uh, acting a problem. One problem can have eight, nine, ten different ways of thinking, and everyone has different mm -hmm. experiences according to their environment and everything. So I think the last thing that I do want to mention is your uh, Libya trip, your thing, and your trip mm -hmm. in Libya, and. You and you had told me this very interesting story 
of uh, this was when the civil war had just broken out and uh, i think a few indians were either stranded in libya and you had to kind of like had negotiations with them could you just tell me as as much as you're comfortable with like how the behind the scenes actually was like how the behind the scenes you know the thing when i was going to libya i was posted in uh, moscow at the time yeah and the prime minister had come uh, mon singh he was visiting there for the visit and during that visit i was told that they would like me to go to libya because i have been handling middle east for quite some time uh, so my wife was not that happy about this decision but eventually i told her i said there's something that one can really have a good uh, professional outcome and all that and i'll be happy to go there and contribute and try to do something but i had no idea about the kind of uh, or depth of the problem that awaited me so when i arrived there uh, by then gaddafi has been killed and the revolution was happening but complete mess and uh, militias were uh, controlling the country in different parts like mohallas being controlled by different militia that kind of we had no security whatsoever there was no government there was nothing so at the airport i was uh, there were chap who came and they were not happy with us the problem was that uh, india had that year we were in the un security council as a non permanent member and we had abstained on the decision to intervene by the nato in libya right so everybody pretended or rather made to understand and think ordinary libyan that indians were supporting gaddafi so that is something that created uh, at the grassroots a great mistrust against indians the the revolutionaries were dead against us the government which took over was against us so on the grassroots level you can imagine how difficult it is for indians and for the ambassador per se because you don't have any connectivity you don't have any access if you are in that kind of a situation so my job became extremely difficult and nobody knew here in delhi and uh, we only once you arrive there then only you can have the full depth of it so when i reached there i saw that indians were just not welcome right including myself yeah. but within a short time i i realized i would use media i'll do this that and so i i became uh, started out as a sitting in the hotel where i was staying because my house was totally uh, destroyed by the revolutionaries during that period fight so i was staying in a in a hotel and there that happened to be a place where a lot of politicians would come right the new politics so there was an indian manager of the hotel and i told him i said if you see any important person you let me know i'll go and talk to them so i would go and tell them excellency i am the new indian ambassador to new libya right and gave them and they generally liked india they were disappointed with our stand basically it was difficult to explain because india is not a banana republic we have our policy yeah of so this is what and then uh, situation was so difficult that uh, there were pockets where people were being killed still there were vengeance taking place so like that the, uh, we tried to evacuate a lot of people many times but at this time particular there was a city called baniwali and baniwali there people were pro gaddafi right yeah. so all yes, these yes, others misratans yes. and government and everybody came and they started attacking them physically through their guns and uh, tanks and what not Uh, to decimate the people in that place so there we had about 125 or 26 indians who were working in carpet factory and different places and i've been telling them two weeks before to leave they wouldn't leave right they thought it happens and it'll happen it'll also pass but then suddenly they started having shelling and bombs and what not and all this i scared and from delhi we started getting friendly calls to evacuate them yep. how do you evacuate them 
that was such a difficult thing. So I went to Chief of Army Staff and I requested him, can you please help us? He said, look, I'm not coordinating. I don't know from the other side who all are there, but we are there, we'll try to do I said, finally, I realized, I said, look, we have to do everything on our own with the little help what we could get from others. So I approached the militia groups which were involved in that. And I said, look, we are not your enemies. We have done nothing to you except help you. And by then I was able to establish my credentials rather well for country. So I said, look, most of these guys fight whole night. And then in the morning again, they start. So but three, four hours in the morning, they generally go to sleep, five hours, six hours. So we have that window available to us for people to walk to the border of that city. And then we pick them up. So we took a chance and we tried to with them and we brought out Indians and there was a couple of uh, Pakistani families, there was some Bangladeshi, some Sri Lankan families. So we brought out everybody in the buses outside. It would have just gone, uh, if one person would have been killed or something would have happened because shelling was going on, that uh, we could have had a terrible scenario. Similarly, I had done it uh, afterwards when I left Mongolia, uh, Libya. So. Again, I was sent back to evacuate people and I was based in Malta. I sent four young officers and a boat and then we evacuated 430 people from there. So, uh, so this is an interesting yes. thing. You have this to coordinate with all your friends. Not only friends, but sir, with um, with different cultures, and that's why that's why understanding culture comes into play, and that's why living in Middle yes. East, what you understand is the culture is a lot different from the Indian culture, yet it's very similar. You know? Yeah. And I think, and what I really found is, if you under, if you speak in their language, and if you understand, if you respect it, they show the same, they show the same, they reciprocate the same amount of trust and love in you. And that's when right. I find very interesting, and that's what I love about culture, and I love about talking about culture. And I think this is the, um, maybe this is the last stage of my life uh, as uh, my conversation that I, before I end it. I do this uh, every time is I let the guest, whichever guest that I get on ask maybe me a question if they were ever curious about you know i know this might sound very silly at times but it's very important because so that we can actually kind of summarize you know we both have learned quite a bit about each yeah. other so is That's there any, is there very is there anything you're very curious to know about because you know papa very well you know mama very well Ansh maybe and you know my grandmom and granddad maybe me and Ansh, of course just by Maybe just by unfortunate, just unfortunately, we we you just weren't living in Dubai. We just weren't able to interact as much as you know used to come for two three days. So, is there yeah. anything you were ever curious to ask me per se or Ansh? Well, as, I would as, like to know. Uh, I would like to know what kind of an India are you aspiring for as a young man. Very interesting question, and and I think you asked this other foreign services. For me, I've always been an outsider when it's come to Indian relations. When you, I've, I've had a very interesting outlook, uncle. I have had the outlook of living outside India as well as inside India, and which is which is an which is outside very few people, and only maybe in the diplomatic relations, and maybe people are now. I'm talking 80s. My only diplomatic people, only the people who are in the foreign services, had this exposure of living outside and mm-hmm. inside India, and I think I've been blessed uh, to have that uh, opinion. From outside, uncle, it's like, and I do attribute the media as well, where the the way, the, especially in the in the UAE, the way in the way India was covered was in a very negative light, was in a very, and the thing is, when you continue to 
portray something in a media in a negative light for a longer duration of time you tend to almost believe that that's what's happening mm-hmm. and it's this fear and uncle it's very fear that i can't explain but most middle east kids over there they have this thing where going back to india was almost like this sort of like you know like it was like a punishment you know and that's how we were ingrained with because we lived we loved our lives in uae and no one likes change but i think one thing what i found and and to answer your question uncle i want in india see we have th- thousand countries but i just want the citizens of my generation to be proud of the country we are we are just to in the sense ki of course better economic opportunities better political religion better politic- political uh aspiration for better political uh, or maybe diplomatic relations with other countries but more on more than anything uncle our our imagination i can't talk for my generation i can only talk with myself is we just don't want to guy sure 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 i'll just go yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so uncle to come yeah so to come back to your answer uncle uh, i feel it's very important that uh, as our generation so um, no one wants to be divided uncle in the end it's irrespective what political party you 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 are from whatever your political beliefs are this that whatever uncle everyone wants a stable life everyone wants to make friends everyone wants to live to their old age everyone wants to to keep their family safe and when these basic things uncle are threatened and when they are uh, threatened in such a way like the covid pandemic has proven this creates a sense of hopelessness in in especially our generation when and when you do, and then when we start looking for answers and when we looking for answers we want accountability who do we trust who is the trust that we give into and it's the ruling party unfortunately that gets maximum of the blame whether that's right whether that's wrong uncle that's for people to decide that's not for me to decide but it's about having that trust uncle and i want us as citizens to have trust in our country trust in our system trust in our institutions like my parents used to talk about how much trust they had in their country and because of how polarized we've become we we don't have trust in our governments the uncle our countries are not built by our governments our countries are not built by political parties our countries are built by the fabrics of us as an identity of us as people of us yeah. as a, as and that's what we and that's what we celebrate is the fact that we are a secular country the fact that we are accepting to others and as a and we we have a beautiful beautiful culture and when these things are threatened or when the threat when people say you know when people ask for these different types of religious ideas or political ideas that are move forward this tends to divide the country and this tends to divide opinions in families in itself so i think that's what to summarize your answer uncle is we i want to united india and that might sound very uh, filmy and very idealistic but no it's not i i feel uncle right now more than ever i am for the first time uncle in a long time i'm proud i understand what it is to be indian and I just didn't have that perspective living in Dubai. You know, uncle jitna bhi aap keh lo, there's a difference between looking at India from a third person and living in India as a first person. Correct. So, and you understand that you understand that more than anything. You know, you being a representative of India, you understand both perspectives. So, 
I think as a country, we don't want to be divided on the basis of religion. We don't want to be divided on the basis of political caste or caste or any sort of divisions that we want. Yes, in itself, the institutions are flawed and multiple countries. So there are so many flaws in this country in itself. But I think that's what makes us unique is the fact that we have yeah, these, these we have these no. many flaws. And more than anything, uncle is. when we are when we speak about public and when your voices as the younger generation is not heard or and the opinions aren't reciprocated aren't even validated that leads to anger that leads to mistrust and that's where there's a there's almost like a generation gap between the political leaders and the generation and the people that they are ruling and when you take and when you continue to have that generation gap uncle is that's when the that, that's when the unhappiness increases that's when you want something but you're not getting that from a country you're not getting the facilities from a country you're not getting so many of these things which we saw in this covid pandemic has improved and i think more than anything <clears throat> uncle uh, and what i conclude by saying this is i think one should always be proud to be the citizen of their country irrespective of what citizen it is and and i think during this pandemic times a lot of people felt ashamed of being an indian especially with the way we dealt it and the way the the outside world viewed us and that can that must have major ramifications especially politically and especially uh, diplomatically and i think in the end uncle I just want to be proud of my country. You know, wherever I am, whichever part of the world I am, I just want to know that if any time anyone asks me where am I from, and I say Indian, I should not feel that sense of I said India. Oh my God, what will they think? I'll say India with my heart out. I think, and the I'm fact sure. that and and I think that's what we want, Uncle, as a country. That's what we strive for. Everyone just wants. the basics everyone wants to have friends everyone wants to grow old everyone wants to have a family and that's it and there are few things that will just never maybe technology will change the viewpoints will change everything but the basic nature of human beings uncle will never change yeah, and no i fully agree with you i mean that's what essentially india is what you have expressed and i'm so happy that you are a vigilant young person who is uh, wanting the same greatness for india that all of us hankered for but at the same time i want to tell you that very often today's time and age in this media of course what you mentioned these those factors are very much there and they have probably been accentuated more uh, over time but i believe that sometimes as you rightly mentioned that if you see something in the media for too long uh, and uh, it you tend to very be very true very true yes so that is the that is the bane of the 24/7 uh, information campaigns and so there are uh, there are uh, you see any fact if it is taken out of context sometimes by itself or put in a different context can give you a very entirely different venn diagram you know and so it is very important uh, to to sift it but at the same time you have to be um, i would say as youth i mean young people and i talk to a large number of students uh, from universities and all and i always say that it's india is now you for us the future is you right so what you are is india going to become tomorrow and uh, of course the political parties will have to adjust eventually uh, to the reality of the expectations of the people right that's extremely important because you can't they, everybody else is an actor but the country is a country it's a nation the people build it 
our civilizational heritage builds it. And so we are different people. And I'm one thing I would like to say that uh, even during the pandemic, even though there have been shortages, there have been some mismanagement. And I think the response, the response, response. it's been brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that is there. It's, a, it's a something that has been there, which I agree with you that could have been much better had we not been celebrating successes early. That is very true. But at the same time, during this pandemic, from the diplomatic perspective, I would like to tell you, as India has acquitted itself very creditably, it is the only country in the world which started uh, providing assistance to the world in the early days by providing medicines and people and uh, this thing to 150 countries in the beginning. Second time is when the vaccines happened, we did about 65 million vaccines to 95 countries. You know, so what happens is that you are soft property, your people, the perception of India. But what you have done is you have not been able to manage internal distribution, vaccine, yes, or availability yes, yes, of oxygen yes. and all that. Very that true. is an administrative issue. And it is not necessarily, uh, I would say, a, 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 a structural weakness we have. And uh, I, I must say that these kind of pandemic happens once in 100 years. It Very has true. tested the infrastructure all across the world. The most infected country in the world has been US. The maximum number of deaths, the maximum number of people, but they have come out of it now. So it has taken them quite some time. India has, so I would like to just say that we have to look at both the sides uh, of the coin. But what is wrong, it needs to be called out. What is wrong needs to be called out. And only the youth can do that. And I think it was lovely talking to you. That's a beautiful way to end this live, this conversation, Uncle, is the way, you know, that, and I think what I see is, Uncle, is the fact that I'm talking to these different people with these different perspectives and how they think is, and I think you learn so much in yourself and you learn, let's say, I didn't know about the diplomatic way of thinking. And I think that's where the role of media, Uncle, and the news channels has to, they've really stepped, they have to really step up especially in today's world because the the common man will not have these perspectives the person who's staying at his house because you know he or she can't get out he does not have the he, he's already worried about his own life he doesn't he doesn't know what's happening in the, the diplomatic relations he doesn't know what's happening that and of course social media is there and the role of media is there but the role of media is also to pro- inform and actually kind of relax people instead of panic them and yeah. Maybe this could be an opinion for another, it could be conversation for another time. But yes. I think more than anything, Uncle, I have been <clears> so <throat> proud of the response after the second wave and the way we've dealt with it and the way we are still under these cases and the way everything has been dealt properly. And I'm so proud of our doctors, I think. I did an entire story and I've done, I've done yes. an entire conversation, recorded conversation with different medical students uh, and different doctors as well. And where they tell you the intricacies, I spoke to my own Nanu, who is a doctor, and he's a dentist. Uh, and I spoke to, and he, he really told me about what the reality was and how this was something that medically we've never come across. And just learning on it on the spot, and just having these very interesting. And so I think we should we should end it here. And Uncle, thank you so 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 much yeah. for coming on my. Thank you. Call. Thank you God so. Bless you. Thank you. Take thank care, you. Man. I will. I will. <laughs>